And we're back with another episode of the Insignificant Others podcast. I'm Brett Featherston here with Rob Flint. So our episode tonight that we uh, recorded just a few minutes ago, I think you're going to find really fascinating. We had Andrew Stevens on. So uh, Andrew Stevens, for those of you not familiar with his work, uh, I would think since we are in Dallas, probably some of the best known work he did was on the TV show Dallas. But to say that that's what he's known for really doesn't do justice because he produced over 175 movies. He was an actor. He was a writer. He was a director, uh, definitely a producer. And he was in real estate. It, uh, really kind of a renaissance man. And and the, the thing that gets me is that, uh, and he talks about it a little bit in our, our conversation with him, about how actors kind of get withdrawn because somebody wants something from him. He, he's maintained the fact that he, he's a nice person. He's just a nice guy. Yeah, he's a very nice guy. He he has worked with several well-known actors. I mean, the list is is very long. De Niro, Willis, Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, Jack Nicholson. The list goes on and on. So to any movie buff and our listening audience, I think they're really going to like to hear Andrew's story. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so a couple things that really stood out to me. First of all, is uh, just how, and he said it, it's it's movie business. It is a business. And clearly he's a very intelligent person because he, he took the business side of it very seriously and had success there, which is all well and good, but I still can't get past the fact that he was married to Kate Jackson. He was married to... Charlie's Angel. An angel. Yes. I mean, as a 12-year-old boy in the 70s, she was the be-all and end-all for me. She still is the be-all and it all for me, right? <laughs> no, he. The one thing that really kind of resonated with me is is, and I think you asked a great question, which was what what exactly does a producer do? Everyone sees the word producer scroll through a movie credit at the end of a movie, and and we all think that we know what a producer does, but in listening to him talk about what a producer does, it certainly is a lot more involved than what I thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it sounds uh, like it was a heck of a lot of fun to roll up in the tux to the, the Cannes Film Festival and, and uh, you know all the experiences that he had from, from being an actor, which was just a little piece of his career, to uh, to making movies and working all these. It was a really fun story, I thought. It, it, and you know, the, the other thing that uh, it probably talked about more with you and I off the air was just about being a dad, you know. Yeah. He, he clearly takes that role very seriously in yeah. his life. He does, but before we get to him, uh, I want the opportunity to uh, congratulate you on... Uh, what I'm going to refer to as Donald Trump being the presumptive Republican nominee for President of the United States. Yeah, Ted Cruz did drop out tonight, I he, heard. He or, did. or it was reported he was going to. So um, it, it's it's not congratulations to me, Rob. It's congratulations to America. <laughs> That's, yes. Hills in the dawn. I, I cannot wait to see those two people on stage during the presidential debates. And I don't care where you stand politically, and I don't care who you support, don't support, like, don't like. It is going to be 
made for TV, prime time. You you better have popcorn and beer in hand when those president. It's it's it. Politics has turned into a battle royal made for TV event. True. So congratulations. I figured you'd be really ecstatic. Uh, so I've only got two points. We want to get straight to Andrew's story. The the first point that's top of my mind is walking versus riding. So I, I was fortunate enough to be invited on a wonderful golf trip with some friends of mine, and it was a course where golf carts aren't allowed. And like most men in our listening audience who play golf, you know, you're for the most part going to ride a cart 99.9% of the time. Walking is the superior way to play the game. There's no doubt. But the one thing when I was walking uh, the rounds that I played, I played a total of three rounds. When I was walking the rounds that I played, it made me think about just the aspect of walking uh, to the game especially if you're a professional, because the course that we were playing playing on was very hilly. It was long. Actually, each round was uh, a total walking distance of eight miles. And some of the tee boxes were elevated. You had to walk up the, the, you know, the hill to get to the, to the tee box, and your heart race is racing, and you kind of have, <laughs> have to calm yourself down just so that you can hit a tee shot. So I, I'm a big proponent of walking and think that uh, you know it's certainly a, a, an aspect of the game. You know, I, I I once was a proponent of Casey Martin. Remember him? Oh yeah. So uh, Casey Martin was the kid from Stanford who played uh, with Tiger Woods and Nota Begay, and and he had an ailment that required him to use a cart. And I'm I'm a definite uh, proponent against any kind of use of a cart in professional golf. Um, and then my, my last point is Game of Thrones is back, which I think Game of Thrones is an appropriate segue into Andrew's story because he does reference that that show uh, in his in his talk. Do you watch Game of Thrones, Brett? I don't. I don't have HBO. <laughs> oh, you don't. You can do HBO on demand. Only or HBO, HBO to go. HBO to go. HBO yeah. to go. So I've been uh, well, watching. Let's put it this way: I've, I've seen enough episodes on uh, uh, in hotel rooms and stuff to know that it's it's soft porn. It is, and and I've I, it, you cannot watch it intermittently. You have to. You have to be it. zoned you gotta, in. You got to be zoned in. You got to know what happened from the beginning. Well, not yeah. You kind of have to know what's what happened from the beginning. Um, so I, I've been watching the show since it first came out. I think it's great. It's highly entertaining. The production value is off the charts. Acting is great. Storyline is is great. But I, I'm ashamed to admit that 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 what after five seasons, I I I don't know exactly all that's going on. <laughs> I don't remember all of the characters. But I but I love the show. I watch it. And I was uh, elated to find out last night. Uh, I watched last Sunday's episode uh, last night, so tonight's a Tuesday. Jon Snow is not dead. Jon Snow is alive. It's amazing. That's all you need to know. I have no clue who he is, but okay. That's all you need to know. So speaking of production value and good TV, I think we should just kick it off on to uh, Andrew. Yep. Stay tuned. Andrew's episode is coming up next. Uh, 
Hi, it's Brett Featherston. I'm back with Rob Flint, and our guest today is Andrew Stevens. So, uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to start off with, with uh, you just said that, uh, you know, people would call, used to be people would call you an actor, and you said there was fighting words, and you've, you've mellowed, but, but you started your career as an actor in the 70s. I did. Uh, I was a musician my entire sort of middle school and high school life and and had a falling out with the music instructor at my high school in Memphis, Tennessee, where I grew up. Uh, everyone in my family's from Mississippi, and I was uh, the only one who was born from the Mississippi migrants to the big city of Memphis to get better jobs. Um, but... Uh, I was registering for classes my senior year in school, and I was walking down the hallway, and I looked in this classroom, and I went, oh, my God, who is that? And it was this beautiful 23-year-old blonde woman with tinted glasses, and she was hot. And it was the new speech and drama teacher that had just come into the school. So I hightailed it down to the guidance counseling That office. will motivate a high school boy. Yes. And I signed up for an advanced acting class and was able to get them to waive the prerequisite of having taken a preliminary speech class, which I had never done. And uh, I started doing extracurricular scene work and plays and all this stuff. And, and she really looked at me one day and said, are you serious? If you're serious about this, if you have a passion, I want to put you in these competitions. And there were speech and drama competitions that were on the local level. And I won and then I won and I won and I won and I won. And then she changed the material to see if it was the material or me. And then I kept winning and I kept winning and I won the district and I competed uh, in the state tournament and won state. I think I was the only person to ever win state in anything at my high school in Memphis. But, uh, so you won the state drama competition. I did. I did. That's impressive. I did. So I, um, and it was completely hormonally motivated. <laughs> so, so, so the big question here is: it, it sounds like it wasn't necessarily the training; it was a really a gift that you were blessed with. Well, to I start. Tr- truly had a passion for it at the time, and I had won some college scholarships that I'd applied to a school in St. Augustine, Florida, and uh, I was going to get a. BA in theater arts. And uh, there was an old TV actor named Richard Boone who not only taught at the school, but he had a community theater and I had the opportunity to work with him in the community theater. I got waylaid. I went to Los Angeles for kind of a little summer jaunt uh, right after I graduated high school. I was 17 and I met an agent at a party in Hollywood. And he said, uh, how you doing, kid? Uh, who are you? What do you do? And I kind of told him my story. And he said, oh, my God. So what are you going to do with this talent? I mean, you, you, you won the state tournament. And I said, I'm going to go get my degree. He said, for what? And I said, so I can be an actor. He said, you don't need a degree, kid. You need an agent. <laughs> I said, what's an agent? He said, I am. I said, well, who do you represent? He said, Jane Fonda, Burt Reynolds, Candace Bergen. Those were some of the biggest stars in the world. And this all happened time. at a party. Just at a party. To- at a wow. party. So with his encouragement and his promise to represent me, I forewent my scholarships. I stayed in Los Angeles. He started sending me on auditions. I started working. Uh, 
I never took another job. I never worked as a waiter or anything else. I supported myself solely as an actor for 22 years. And uh, I transitioned in 1992 to uh, full-time writing, producing, filmmaking, and, and quit acting. If someone looked on the internet, they would see that it looked like I acted once a year every year, which is uh, fundamentally true, but I would hire myself once a year for one day yeah. to, maintain, <laughs> to maintain my, my uh, pension plan qualifications with my guild and to maintain my medical insurance for my family. So... Uh, it- and your mom was an actress also, right? Yes, she was. Yes, okay. she was. But did, did she want you to go into the business? You know, she and I were estranged most of my life, so I, I didn't really have uh, a, uh, uh, a rapport with her in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, any advice or non-advice. Uh, and actors are liabilities unto themselves. So, you know, one actor certainly can't help another actor get a job. That's for sure. Right. Uh, right. You know, and, and when, uh, long story short, I, um, uh, you know, as as I began and began to be successful in working in film and television, and I always kept my hand in the theater. Uh, you know, I I won a, a Golden Globe nomination for uh, uh, film as an actor, the National Association of Theater Owners Star of Tomorrow Award <clears throat> for another film. Uh, you know, numerous television awards, uh, never an Emmy, but uh, uh, other various awards, and then I won the L.A. Drama Circle Critics. Award, which are the Los Angeles Tonys for a stage performance that I did. And uh, <clears throat> it was all great, except that the entire business changed. And as home video came to the mm-hmm. fore and then other new media started to evolve, media started to make its own stars. And back in the old days, they would never think of doing a TV series without a bona fide TV star or someone who had come from film to television to be the backbone or patriarch or matriarch of the show. And as television evolved, television started making its own stars. And daytime has always made its own stars. Right, right. So... um, that's 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 kind of the 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 genesis of it, and after it went along for a while, I, I really I, I wanted to be the master of my own fate. I didn't want to be at the whim of someone else's objective or subjective viewpoint of too old, too young, too fat, too thin, too short, too tall, whatever. And I'd really become disenamored with it. Uh, I had numerous other talents, and I I began writing, uh, began directing, and I used my acting services to barter uh, my my way into being able to write, produce, and direct without ever having to act again, except for my my uh, yeah. <laughs> my pension qualifications. Putting yourself in your own movies, exactly. Yeah. So so was your role in um, the Boys in Company C, which you referred to earlier that's that's the role that you were nominated for a golden globe was that kind of the watershed moment for you from going from you know talented actor that maybe a few people knew to uh, a talented actor that a lot of people knew you know it was interesting in that particular film 
uh, took a while to edit and get into the theaters. And immediately after that film, I shot a film uh, called The Fury, in which I co-starred with Kirk Douglas, John Cassavetes, Amy Irving, Charles Durning. And uh, it was directed by Brian De Palma. Um, it was a studio released through Fox. And I also snagged a uh, the lead in a four-hour miniseries based on a John Jakes novel called The Bastard. And it was one of these cavalcade of every has-been and or current star, television or movie or otherwise that they could jam into these things. And, uh, and it was an interesting concept. Uh, a uh, concept evolved called Operation Primetime where... Uh, this group went around and said, hey, instead of airing Rich Man, Poor Man Part 2 for two airings and, you know, they're charging an arm and a leg for all the advertising, we're going to sell you this show for a percentage of the actual budget to produce it based on your market share and you can run it in perpetuity as many times as you want to run it. So everybody jumped on the bandwagon. All these, you know, these affiliates and, and owned and operated television stations pitched in and produced a, a, a number of television miniseries, and they promoted them like nobody's business. I mean, it was it was like Clay Cooley on TV every night, <laughs> <laughs> and tonight at eight. <laughs> Andrew Stevens is the bastard, born out of wedlock, starring Tom Bosley, William Shatner, William Daniels, uh, Gene Simmons, blah, 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 blah. And Andrew Stevens is the bastard. And Jay Leno did routines. And Second City, City did routines. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I was the bastard. And I also... Uh, was recording a little uh, music as a as a solo artist for Mike Curb, who's the former former lieutenant governor of California, and I did American Bandstand with Dick Clark, and I had all of these platforms in Battle this of the Network Stars, sort of perfect storm. That was a little later, but <laughs> but uh, in this sort of perfect storm at the time, and particularly with that television promotion of people repeating my name over and over with every TV star they'd ever heard of as being the main star, uh, that kind of generated uh, a, 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 an awareness yeah, so so just just for the benefit of our, of our audience who may not be aware of this, um, you actually auditioned for the role of Luke Skywalker. Is that correct, or just for the movie Star Wars? Yeah, I guess I did. I, it was just a routine casting call, and a bunch of people were coming in. And as I I, I don't, it was a non-event for me. But as I recall it. Uh, there were a couple of guys I'd never heard of, a guy named George Lucas and a guy named Brian De Palma, <laughs> seeing all these young actors, and Brian was casting Carrie, and Lucas was casting Star Wars, and uh, yeah, it was not a very good audition. It was not a very eventful meeting, yeah. and I didn't get the material at all. I'm not a Star Wars fan to this day, but I ended up making a connection with De Palma, who didn't hire me for Carrie because I was younger than the cast he hired. I think Sissy Spacek, who was playing high school, was five yeah. or six years older than me at the time, and I was truly high school age, uh, and 
that connection sustained so that when I met him again for the Fury, he hired me. Okay. Interesting. And, and so and, and there's so much more beyond acting, but the one thing that I do want to point out is being in Dallas, you were a star on the TV show Dallas back in Dallas's heyday. I, I, I hate to characterize it the way it truly was, but this was sort of the mid-80s, 86, 87, I guess, as, as I recall it. And I had sort of thrown in the towel and said, okay, I'm quitting acting. And I was writing. I was starting to set up some deals with scripts that I'd written, attach myself to produce, uh, was really trying to direct film and direct television, which I, I went on to do successfully. But... Uh, I got out of the blue. I got offered this two-year contract role on this old, tired retread series that had a whole bunch of characters. And I went, oh, my God, if I do that, my career is really over. So I really can <laughs> never act again if I do this thing. But, <laughs> and because I'd, I'd always starred in my own shows. Right. I'd, never, I'd never done somebody else's show. And the show happened to be called Dallas. And there are legions of very loyal fans, and I made some really good friends. But it was certainly not a career move. It was the nadir of my, of my career <laughs> to take a role on somebody else's show for not the greatest money. And, and that's part of the disenamorment there, if that's a word, or, or, or the, the catalyst for becoming disenamored with, with acting is that when you start making commercial decisions, uh, uh, rather than artistic decisions, it, it all kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. Um, I, I sometimes, you know, people are able to do that, but they're a handful. Uh, for most people, you don't want to live at 30, 35 years old the way you lived when you were 18. Right. And when you own a house and you've got responsibilities or a wife or, you know, a lifestyle, then you start making commercial decisions rather than artistic ones. And uh, I just fell out of love with it. And I was very much wanting to move on and, and do other things. And I became a, a, a successful writer. I became a successful director. And then I became, uh, at least as quoted by Hollywood Reporter, one of the most prolific producers in Hollywood. I produced and financed 175 films, uh, motion pictures of all budgets and genres, and owned my own companies and owned my own films and had output deals with major studios for theatrical films, uh, created art house divisions, did 30 to 40 pictures for Sundance, Venice, Cannes, uh, Toronto, etc., and then had a robust straight-to-video division with uh, home video stars like Wesley Snipes and Steven Seagal mm -hmm. and Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme and that ilk. So having done it all, from acting to writing to directing to producing, is there one piece of that that you enjoyed more than the others? I'm a deal maker. I I care most about the deal. Does the deal work? Does it not work? Uh, when I moved to Dallas, uh, and interestingly, if one good thing came out of my little two-year stint of a supporting role on that show was that I made some lifelong friends, and I have no connection to Texas or Dallas at all, except that I watched my friends' kids 
grow up in Highland Park and go to school in Highland Park. And I went to Highlander and watched their sons play football and I watched their daughters as bells. And I said, my gosh, if I ever grow up belatedly and have kids, this is where I want to raise my kids. I certainly don't want to raise them in L.A. And uh, I have three kids. Uh, my son's a freshman at Texas Tech and my daughters are at HP Middle School. But uh, I um, specifically moved here to get them out of Los Angeles and to try and get them into an environment that I thought was was better for their upbringing. So when did you move to Dallas? Uh, 11 years ago, almost 11 years ago, a couple of months shy of 11 years. Now I've heard that the Dallas, uh, filmmaking industry is, is really strong and thriving, or at least it was at one time. Is that not true? It was probably because I was making movies here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've never seen a stronger thriving film business in Dallas, but there are the occasional thing yeah. uh, that, that, you know, come through here. And I know that there were some series that, that came through here. Uh, the problem with Texas as a film hub is that there are so many states that are very competitive with subsidies and tax credits, and Texas is not. Uh, there are uh, some very difficult to get and paltry subsidies that do not in any way compete with neighboring states like New Mexico or Louisiana. And uh, we go where the money is. And I was on the board of directors of the Independent Film and Television Alliance, which is the constituency of almost every independent company in the business. And I was the chairman of the Independent Producers Association and steered all the collective bargaining with the, uh, the craft unions and guilds on behalf of the independents. And <clears throat> no one would ever come to Texas to film except me because I lived here. And when I moved here in 2005, I had a 17-picture deal with Sony. And I probably shot eight or nine or ten pictures here. I lost count. but That was the thriving movie business. Yeah, well, it was thriving for me because yeah. I didn't have to travel and I could take my kids to school. <laughs> so like you said, over 175 motion pictures that you produced, including uh, The Whole Nine Yards with Bruce Willis, Matthew Perry, and Amanda Peet, The Boondock Saints with Willem Dafoe, Sean Patrick Flannery, and Billy Connolly. You've worked with a lot of stars. But help me understand, because when I see the word producer, I, I think I know what that means, but I don't know that I really do. When you produce a film, what is it that you're really doing? Uh, okay. In my book, uh, my first book on filmmaking called Foolproof Filmmaking, which uh, uh, is available through my website, uh, the analogy that I use is making or constructing a film is like building a spec house. And I know there are a lot of real estate guys and or residential or commercial. I'm going to go residential for this analogy. But uh, the... Producer is the builder. The producer finds the dirt, puts together the deal, hires the architect, draws the plans, gets the plans approved, gets the permits, hires a construction of, a construction foreman to oversee mm -hmm. the build, i.e. the director. Right. That's a poor analogy, and most directors would take umbrage with that, but it, it's really essentially true. And the writer, obviously, is the, the architect. And the producer hires 
everyone oversees every aspect of production. When the house is finished, well, when the plans are finished, the writer goes on his way and drafts something for someone else. When all the subs are finished, they're probably working multiple jobs at the time. You have a pattern budget. You've got film, electric, grip, transportation, uh, post-production. Well, you've got plumbing, steel, uh, lumber, uh, you've got fixtures, you've got finished materials, and it's all fungible and it's all the same. You've got a pattern budget with categories you borrow from Peter to pay Paul. You try and come in on schedule, you try and come in on budget. Generally in the movie business, we have a 10% contingency. The only difference between our loans in the movie business and, 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 uh, real estate loans, I've done my fair share of real estate as well, is that real estate loans are generally recourse, movie loans are not. Uh, yeah. so, uh, that's the the best analogy that that I can give, and the producers left, and the builders left with that finished product at the end of the day, while everybody else has gone on to right. their next job and their next job and their next job. Builders got to guarantee his work for a year. Producer has to deliver in accordance with every foreign delivery schedule, every domestic delivery schedule, in accordance with the completion bond who has takeover rights. If the producer goes south, and you know, my analogy is that people in the movie business are like auto workers on an assembly line. They know how to fit the set screw in a rear view mirror, put in the console or the front or rear bumper. They have no clue how how to make the whole car. They have no clue how that car or that model car got greenlit. They don't know where it's going when it leaves the assembly line, what barge it's, it's being loaded on, what port it's landing in and what country, what dealer is, is selling it, and who the end user is and servicing that end user. And that's what the producer does if he's an independent entrepreneurial producer. If he's just an employee producer working for a studio, he does his job, turns it over to the studio, moves on. And they do well. everything else. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, there's a lot of arms and legs that go into producing a motion picture. What's the biggest pain in the ass about that? Actors, directors, and writers. People. Yeah. <laughs> People. <laughs> All right. So, so from the boss mentality, where you're the producer and you've worked with, it named off a whole bunch of them before, Robert De Niro, Kevin Costner, Jennifer Lopez, Kevin Spacey, Jack Nicholson. Was there anybody that you came across from the talent side that you found really inspirational that you were like, this is somebody that I could really like just go get a beer with and hang out and talk? Because um, my impression is that most of them are going to be prima donnas and kind of hard to get along with. You know, everyone's so insulated because people want something from them, even if it's just to be close to them, even if it's just a scribble on a piece of paper, even if it's a moment of their time, right. or, you know, with this insidious invention of the smartphone, a, a, a selfie or a whatever. And the majority of actors, and myself included, they just kind of want to be left alone. And if they want to share something, they want to do it on their terms. They don't want to, I, I mean, I wrote a foreword for a book on Charles Bronson and I don't know if your audience remembers Charles Bronson, but he was a huge movie Charles star Bronson. and I loved it. Loved did Charles all the Bronson. death wish movies. And, and I was doing a movie with Charles Bronson, actually my second film with him as an actor. And Bronson was this enigma and nobody talked to Charles Bronson. 
you would sit next to him and just, you know, kind of look over at him and he'd say, move away. (laughs) (laughs) And so I learned to ignore him. And interestingly, I was sitting in a car. We're playing detective partners, uh, you know, old cop, young cop, and uh, in a movie called Ten to Midnight. And I'd gone through makeup, and I had a cup of coffee and a newspaper. And and instead, I, I think it was a little brisk early in the morning. And instead of sitting in a chair out on the set, I got in the squad car and I like dismissed the extra who was or the stand-in who was lining up the shot for the you know they were lighting. And I just sat there and read the paper and drank my coffee. And when Charlie got finished, he sat down. And he had a little nap, uh, Kleenex tucked in his lapel so he didn't get makeup on his collar before we shot and he didn't say a word and I didn't even look at him I just kept reading the newspaper kept reading the newspaper uh you know went to the sports section went to the business section and he just sat there and sucked his teeth (laughs) finally he got bored he said good morning Andrew (laughs) I didn't even look at him I said morning Charlie and I, ignoring this guy, set a bear trap for him and lured him in without him knowing it because I wasn't pursuing him. He didn't feel threatened. He didn't feel like someone was trying to steal something or take something from him. He opened up. He talked about working with Sergio Leone, uh, who was the maestro of Italian spaghetti westerns. He did Once Upon a Time in the West, one of my favorite films. Sergio Leone shot without sound, and he played music for each individual character. Charles Bronson talked about working in the coal mines back in the Dakotas. He talked about, uh, about working on stage. He talked about doing the great escape with Steve McQueen, he talked about things that he probably hadn't talked about in 20 or 30 years to anybody except perhaps his wife. And uh, and it was extraordinary because he decided to share because he wasn't threatened. And I think that's what most actors are like. Uh, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, and some are really good at being gracious and available and embracing their celebrity. And other people are just guys that want to act and they didn't sign up for that whole other side of it. And today with all these tabloid shows and the uh, TMCs and all that, I mean, it's, it's constant stalking and your whole life is dodging paparazzi and dodging people with cameras and, and smartphones and you never know who's recording you. And it's, it's horrific. I, I mean, as wonderful as the internet is, it's the most insidious device ever created by mankind. Yeah. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, is there, is there someone who sticks out, um, you worked with who was, Difficult. <coughs> Almost all of them. Almost all of them. <laughs> you see, I'm trying. I'm trying to bait you. So, <laughs> Almost all of them are difficult. But uh, is there anybody that you can you can share with our audience who sticks out? Let's say more than others. If you want to name names, I, or I pro- you don't have to. You I can produced still eight Steven Seagal films in spite of Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> and Sony financed. All of them. Uh, if it wasn't a deal for me. And again, you know, I, whether it's real estate or whether it's movies, I'm all about the deal. 
and the deal either works or doesn't. And you know, I've done commercial real estate. I've built spec houses. I've I've uh, flipped and sold buildings, and and built and flipped and sold film companies and film libraries. And it's the deal that really exhilarates me. The uh, the making of the film is the penance you have to pay for the high that you get for closing the deal. So the deal, the deal trumps the goal. The deal trumps the goal <laughs> eight times in a row. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Point taken. So, in in of all the movies that you've produced, are there one, two, three that stand out that you're most proud of? You know, I've never had favorites. Uh, I mean, I got to do some really cool stuff, and and that's the only thing I can. Um, you know, people talk about going to Sundance. I got to go to Sundance many times and had four pictures in three years in the festival and in competition, and got to you know be audience favorites and be there as one of the filmmakers. Uh, I had one. Uh, and, and people, most people don't really know this, but, uh, uh, right now is, uh, the Cannes film market is imminent. It's mid-May almost every year. And it's in, um, Cannes in the south of France. Yeah. Uh, and it is a film festival which succeeds and overlaps the Marché de Film or the Cannes film market. Films are sold at trade shows. So for over 20 years, I wore a suit and tie every day. I not only ran my business with 70 employees in Los Angeles full-time, but had hundreds of employees on each film on a per-film basis. And some years, I shot 20 films in a year. So I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of itinerant employees and 70 full-time employees, and I was constantly creating new slates and new lineups to go to Milan every year, to Cannes every year, to the American film market every year, in, in the south of France, to Berlin, to Vervent, to Venice, because festivals evolved as film markets. And at film markets, they're trade shows. I would set up a booth either in uh, uh, a convention hall or in a hotel room and put up panels and have posters and artwork. And I would say, okay, here's Bruce Willis and Matthew Perry and the whole nine yards, but it's not made yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got a director. He did my cousin Vinny. He hasn't worked in a few years, but this is his comeback. Here are all the demographics for friends worldwide. Here are the box office receipts for all of Bruce Willis's biggest hits. And this film's going to be terrific. It's funny. Here's the script. And I would tell a good story. And I would pre-sell Italy, Germany, France, Spain, Benelux, Scandinavia, Eastern Europe as a bloc, Latin America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Turkey, uh, Middle East, Japan. And I knew percentage-wise what negotiable sales contract I needed for Comerica Bank, who was my lender, my entertainment lender. I did over a billion dollars worth of loans with Comerica Bank on single picture film finance. And I knew that I had to come out of, for instance, Canon in 1999 or 2000, but when we were trying to put together financing for all nine yards with X amount of pre-sales that were 
acceptable contracts to the lending bank, and if their cash flow is overextended, the bank might require 50% letter of credit or 100% letter of credit. The bond company had to approve them, and it was a paperwork nightmare. I lived in the banking world for decades. And uh, as Orson Welles said, I spend 10% of my time making making movies, and I spend 90% of my time trying to get them financed. And that is right. absolutely true. So I would then take those contracts, uh, do voluminous other paperworks, which are basically directions to pay, which obviate me as the sales agent, because I wasn't only the producer, I was the sales agent, the financier, the guarantor, and, and it was a, an enormous uh, uh, responsibility with many, many hats and millions of, of dollars at stake and in many people's lives and livelihoods at stake sure. on a per-picture basis. Yeah. So, so which festival do you like better, Sundance or Cannes? Well, I, I went off on a on a tangent, but the whole purpose of of the can thing is the looky loos come in about mid market, and all the festival goers come in, and a fraction of them actually are affiliated with any of the movies, and the rest of them are people that just want to look and try to get into parties and hang out and rub elbows with whomever. But one particular year, I'd produced a movie called um, The Pledge starring Jack Nicholson and Robin Wright Penn and a lot of really, really good actors from Benicio Del Toro to, uh, gosh, I mean, the, the supporting cast in that movie was extraordinary, but it was directed by Sean Penn. And we were accepted into the Cannes Film Festival. So one time in my life, I got to put on that tuxedo and ride in the Citroens down the Croisette and pull up in front of the Palais where... I would go to work to sell my movies, but I got to go up the, the red carpet steps and, you know, smile and, and I wear my sunglasses and then go in it. And when you enter the theater, everyone stands and applauds until the director enters and no one sits until the director sits. So I was sitting. You know, two seats away from Sean, and I had my sunglasses on. He had sunglasses on. When he sat, I sat. Well, I, I think I'd taken them off. I took them out of my pocket, put them back on. When the lights went down, I went to sleep. And <laughs> I'd seen the movie 160 <laughs> times throughout the editorial process, and I couldn't bear to watch it again. And then we went and partied. But it was a, a fabulous experience and a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing to uh, to be able to do. So so you bring up something that, that made me think of this question. So um, as a producer, as a movie maker, what is it like when you put all of your blood, sweat, and tears into a movie? It's finished, but yet it hasn't been debuted to a public audience and and let's say you're sitting in that theater uh with that public audience and you're you're gauging their reaction to it is that nerve-wracking well it is but it's educational they they have uh recruited already audiences through a company called nrg national research group and uh they track demographics and they recruit audiences and they do Q&A, question and answer and cards, rating all sorts of, of variables in the movie. And then you go back to the editing room and you try and learn from those and mm -hmm. use them to make the picture better and or more commercial. So um, 
it's more nerve wracking if you're the director than sure. if you're the producer. Cause if the producer, if you know, and there are many times that I've had to fire composers that were award winning composers. I've had to fire directors. Uh, I've had to go in and eviscerate their cut and, and recut the movie, uh, put whole new scores on movies and just try to, uh, because as a producer, your end goal isn't show art. It's show business. Oh, that's and, a good point. And, so you're, you're some, you're, desensitized because of the business aspect of the role that you played being that producer. Um, you don't care as much, maybe. I mean, you don't care as much in terms of the quality as long as it makes money. Not exactly. Not exactly. You have an obligation to deliver uh, in accordance, reasonably in accordance with the screenplay that your buyers and distributors around the world have have read and invested their money in. You have a fiduciary responsibility to deliver that not only true to the genre that you've represented and pre-sold to them, but also to finish the picture in a timely manner to meet their production slate. Mm -hmm. Because they've got promises to their audiences in their respective territories worldwide. And most directors are subversive. Most directors want to make a piece of art and most often an art film is subversive to a commercial genre that they've been hired to direct. So it's a constant struggle to try to, because the director's just a guy that you used to know. He's a guy that you hired and you probably will never see again. Uh, and generally good riddance. The, although I've been a director many times, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but the buyers, are people that you have to go back to again and again and again. And particularly even domestically, if you've got a a studio involved and if they're putting up the print and advertising money, for instance, for the whole nine yards, the print and advertising, they call it P and a, but it's print advertising and media buy and prints are obsolete. So they're uh, uh, digital now uh, was probably 15, $20 million more than the actual production budget. So it's you have tremendous responsibilities to people that have invested in you to deliver what you promised them. You know, everyone else is just a a guy you hired or a girl you hired that you may never see again ever. So having done worn all these different hats in the movie making business and seeing the business side of it. Can you be a fan? Can you go to a movie and sit down and just enjoy it for, you know, just for the escapism of it? Absolutely. I don't go to that many movies. My sort of rule of thumb was when I was making movies, if I had to make them, I didn't have to watch them. Uh, <laughs> once picture was locked, uh, I'm kind of teasing, but I watch a lot of really, really good event television. Uh, from Ray Donovan to Game of Thrones, it's the Golden to Age of White Sails and Vikings, yeah. and and that's sort of my entertainment passion. You know, aside from the Donald Trump circuit, <laughs> <laughs> that's Air Circus. Uh, but that's uh, that's that's. I completely am immersed in them and completely addicted. I watched every season of Downton Abbey. Uh, you know, you which know was, we're recording right now. Yes, I do, okay. and, and yeah. I own it. I own it. It's extraordinary, yeah. no. extraordinary television. I like Downton Abbey. I haven't no, seen I the did. last. I was giving you three seasons. Time. No, I, I get it. 
So, okay, so tell us a little bit, when you moved to Dallas, what was the impetus of that? Because we talked about this a little bit. You knew some people, and there was... No, that I didn't want to raise my kids in L.A., and I saw my friend's kids grow up here, and uh, they were huge proponents of um, this being the greatest place on Earth. I'm not sure that that's true, but uh, it's certainly a better place, I think, to, to raise my kids than Los Angeles. So... And and you've talked a lot about real estate. So I know you've dabbled in real estate for several years now. 20, 30 years. 20, 30 years. Yeah. And you've made a lot of money in real estate. What is it about real estate that attracts you? Other, I know you like the deal, but... Just the deal. Just the deal. Just the deal. Now, my partner uh, in my uh, my major film company, I, I had one partner and we together owned the biggest independent phone company in the business uh, for a number of years. And we bought a lot of commercial real estate in Los Angeles. And uh, when we split up, I negotiated for uh, a parcel in Beverly Hills, which was, uh, well, it was actually several parcels that were adjacent. And uh, real estate was going crazy. I mean, all my properties doubled, my house doubled. Uh, you know, when I moved to Texas, uh, I, I built a stupid big lake house and a stupid big Dallas house just because I could because it was funny money. Uh, building was, you know, two thirty a foot here, and it was six fifty a foot minimum there. Right. So, um, uh, and. It's also creative. Building houses for me is creative. I mean, I've done spec houses. I've built lake houses and flipped them. Um, it's just a, it's a it's a creative thing. Even with most of my commercial real estate, and and I owned the office building that I moved into after I left my my large company. I had Phil Anschutz Film Company as my tenants, and uh, you know, owned a hair salon and parking lots and and all sorts of things that that were revenue producing and. Ultimately, uh, you know, your exit strategy is to sell them in, in an up market. And similarly with film libraries. I mean, I, I sold multiple film libraries of films that I owned, the intellectual property and the negative and the distribution rights. When films are sold, they're sold for certain ex- exhibition or distribution rights in individual territories worldwide for a term, meaning a number of years. And if you have a number of films, 10, 15, 20, up to 100, 100 odd films, it looks like a laddered portfolio of, of bonds. Uh, yeah. And they each mature. So, you know, small territories are sold for seven years, mid-size 10 to 12, bigger territories 15 to 20 years. So every 7, 10, 12, 15, 20 years times the multiple of, of films that you own, you have rights coming available for second cycle, third cycle, their annuities in perpetuity for resale. Interesting, interesting. So the other piece I want to get into, so, so right now you, 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 your last movie you made was a couple of years ago, and you've been doing real estate for several years. And then uh, you're also a cancer survivor, which I, I find extremely fascinating and inspirational. So how did that change you? Well, I've never, I've never actually said that before, but that's, uh, that's cool. Um, I was the healthiest guy I knew. And I worked out religiously. I didn't eat a grain of rice for uh, four years. I had 8% body fat. I uh, And 
I had uh, just sort of this nagging, intermittent uh, pain, quite frankly, that would come and go, and it was mostly nocturnal. And um, my doctors missed it for maybe a year and a half. And uh, I, uh, November of 14, finally squawked enough to get my internist to make an appointment with a physiatrist uh, because I was having pain in my right glute and it wasn't radiating down the leg like sciatica. It was radiating, radiating up into like my groin area in several different places. And it made no sense to any of us. And my PSA was 1.7, which to those that don't know, uh, you know, up to 4.0 is in the the acceptable range. range. I mean, I had the PSA of a 30-year-old or maybe a 20-year-old. So um, uh, no one suspected any prostate disorder. And I said I I didn't want to wait until December, which was this belated appointment and the only one I could get with this physiatrist. And I said to my internist, I said, let me go see a urologist or something. Something's not right. And I went to see a urologist uh, named Dr. Porter in uh, at Presby. And he did a prison rape urological exam (laughs) and said, well, you know, your bladder's not emptying fully, but there is absolutely nothing wrong with you urologically. You have no urological disease or disorder. And if you're having any intermittent sexual dysfunction, it's all in your head. You need to go see a sex therapist. (laughs) Uh, I see the physiatrist in... Uh, December, she says, well, just because these nerves don't really connect, we've got a really sensitive MRI that shows the nerve map at UT Southwestern. You know, come back in January and, uh, uh, you know, we'll do an MRI and just see if we can make, make some sense of this. And she calls me a few days later and I have a almost six centimeter tumor on my prostate. And immediately have to go into a biopsy and I fly to Johns Hopkins for a second opinion. I get diagnosed not only with regular adenocarcinoma, which is run-of-the-mill prostate cancer, but I have a lethal deadly anomaly that there are only 100 cases documented that's localized in the prostate. Mm. So, and this is a patient who was told two months earlier that there was nothing wrong with him, wow. but it was yeah. all in his head by a, uh, a urology specialist at Presby, so uh, named Dr. Porter. So, <laughs> so uh, I, um, uh, uh, as I said, immediately flew to Johns Hopkins. I got a second opinion from the top surgeon there and top oncologist there who's world renowned. And I came back. And this to, is what, about three years ago, two years no, ago? No, this is uh, January of 15. Wow. This is a year and a couple of months ago. So I was put on this, you know, drastic, uh, massively lethal uh, chemo regimen for almost six months. And uh, I, with a radical surgery in July, uh, <clears throat> about 10 months ago, what are we, and May, June, July, yeah, about, about 10 months ago. And, uh, followed by 39 radiation treatments, which I finished in November of 15, which is five Just months ago. A few ago. months ago, yeah. Wow. 
And uh, I get clean scans in December, and I get scanned every four months. I get clean scans again into March, and uh, you know. So, uh, and if I get That's clean fantastic. scans, if I get clean scans in in July, uh, they'll let me take my port out, which they keep in for a year from surgery. And if uh, if I stay healthy for uh, Another year after after surgery, they'll uh, they'll let me have my testosterone back. I'm a menopausal woman right now, <laughs> <laughs> but but I uh, so no know. swimming or anything this summer with the port in, or can they can you tape it up? I got married in July. The port's yeah. not open; it's closed. Yeah, uh, I, I I mean it's not. There's no open skin. Yeah, it's just a, uh, a sort of a cyborg thing in your chest. Oh, yeah. So uh, I got married in January 30th. I decided I was going to take my medicine and get well. This was a crazy anomaly that very that was very very extremely rare, and I told my doctors that. You know, just as, and I'm coining a word, anomalically as this thing, you know, uh, appeared, uh, we could, uh, we could have it recede and, and disappear. It was stage four. It was into one of the limps. It was Gleason score eight or nine, depending on who you talk to. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the prognosis was maybe six months for most people. And, you know, uh, here we are. So I lost all my That's hair. That's fantastic. Do you attribute your, your, you know, making it through this the way that you have um, to the good health leading up to that, the way that you lived and the I diet th- and the exercise? and I think that my tolerance of, of the chemo mm-hmm. and the surgery and, you know, by the time I got to the radiation, I was certainly not in as good a shape as when I when I started. But I, th- I think I started at, at a much higher uh, level of health, and I, I never felt bad. And the toughest thing was trying to tell my girls, and they were uh, they had just turned twelve. Well, they've been they're almost twelve and a half, and um, and I had everyone meet in Austin with my with my ex-wife or at a soccer tournament uh, with my daughter and we went to a restaurant poor choice to kind of tell them and they were devastated and and you know and I particularly my daughter Amelia you know I said you know I'm I'm probably going to lose my hair oh no maybe it's just hair you know and and um, and I said, but here's the thing you have to remember. I don't feel bad. And, you know, I would have this intermittent pain, but overall, I don't feel bad. So if I feel bad and I look bad, it's the drugs, not the disease. And if I had a rough day during chemo, she would say, Dad, it's the drugs, not the disease. So, uh, you know, I just decided it was going to, you know, I had... um Great support from friends. You know, um, I had a 60th birthday party uh, on Juneteenth last year. Uh, my birthday's on the 10th, but we had to delay it. Uh, and and I had just fabulous friends, and we played music, and we partied. And and uh, and I said, I, I used to say all my old friends were in L.A., uh, but I don't say that anymore. I, I have fantastic friends here now. And, you know, and, and everyone just, just 
they were just rock stars, you know. And That's fantastic. So I, I got to ask, did you look good bald? I look terrible. So I had a, <coughs> and it's a, it's a long stroke and it's short, but it's, I had a really short buzz cut when I was an adult that kind of by choice, not by choice. But anyway, I looked horrible. And I see these guys that shave their head, and it's like, man, I want to do that. That's got to be so much so efficient in the morning. Oh, my gosh. Well, and I just looked horrible. I had so much vanity tied up in my hair for my entire life. And you know what? I never did the, the you know, kind of the uh, complete shaved head because I'd wear... With a do- Yule Brenner? I, no, I never did. I, I would just, uh, with the little wisps of chicken feathers that I had... I had more around the sides and the back, you know, so it didn't look completely bald. And I'd wear a do rag and a baseball cap, and um, it, it, you know, I mean, I was my skin was yellow and my eyes were red rimmed, so I probably didn't look great. But uh, and that's a testament to my wife because this is a woman that I had met four years ago, and our timing was off, and and uh, you know, she we were friends and we sort of sustained a friendship on and off. But when I got diagnosed, she spent more time with me. Our friendship grew and we actually fell in love while I was on chemo and we got engaged in August and we got married in January. And that's uh, fantastic. You know, but that's a testament to her faith and generosity and belief that, uh, you know, that there was uh, a future and a life beyond cancer. Right, right. All right, so Andrew, we've got uh, just a few minutes left here. So I want to just kind of rapid fire some some questions that Robin and I'll have for you. And the, the first one on my list, so as a, uh, I was probably around 12 years old when Charlie's Angels came out. Your first wife was Kate Jackson, who, you know, it's funny because at the time, Kate Jackson was the be-all and end-all for me. Now that I'm 49, I would say probably Farrah or Jacqueline would be more at the list, and she's, you know, 1B, but you were married to a Charlie's Angel. I was. Um, and you were, what, 22 at the time when you got married? I was 22, I think, when we met, and maybe 23 when we got married and she was 30. And that was the height of her stardom, right? It was third year of Charlie's Angels. The four most popular women in the world were, or five most popular women in the world were the Queen of England, Jackie Onassis, and those three girls. Yeah. So (laughs) uh, it was sort of eye-opening because I had just... You know, that, that sort of perfect storm of all of that media awareness for me, uh, had just occurred. And it was nothing compared to being with someone who was a celebrity of that magnitude. And, you know, I come from a, a different place. I mean, I, you know, uh, my, my, I come from Mississippi and, and Memphis, Tennessee and, Certain things that are commonplace in in Los Angeles are just not to- yeah. tolerable yeah. for me. Yeah, clear. Uh, all right, so we we talked about your the actors you've worked with and, and the movies you've made, and and you said there's nothing that really stands out from the movies that that really are. My, my point was that it's it's the things that I got to do 
that stand out. And, and that was the, I sort of went off on a tangent about, about Cannes and the Cannes Film Festival. But to be able to go to Sundance, not just as a film salesman and or oh, yeah. a, a producer looking for financing, but to go and be embraced by that community. And, uh, you know, uh, one particular film was called The Green Dragon. Nobody's ever heard of it, I'm sure, but it was Forrest Whitaker and Patrick Swayze and a small story about the first Vietnamese refugees that came to Camp Pendleton after the fall of Saigon. And it's a beautiful little personal story, 50% in Vietnamese language with subtitles, shot at Camp Pendleton. And there's just little quirky opportunities. Uh, I got a call one day from a William Morris agent at the time who said, Kevin Spacey's rehearsing Iceman Cometh in New York, and he's rehearsing nights. I said, okay. And he said, he's got a, he's got a little movie he wants to do during the daytime because, you know, his theater rehearsals are at night. I said, has he got the stamina to do that? He said, absolutely. It's his, his passion project. He's developed it and, you know, he, he developed it from a stage play. And it was a little movie called The Big Kahuna. And it was Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito and Peter Facinelli, a little three-hander, shot it for a million eight, uh, you know, in New York. And, you know, just opportunities and little quirky things that arose that that if I hadn't been in the position that I was in or being in the right place at the right time and ready uh, to be able to act on them, um, I, you know, I just have had amazing opportunities. I've lived many, many different lives. Uh, I've had, uh, you know, and, and many different careers. And they've all sort of been great in hindsight so are, are you just 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 so our listening audience is is clear are you completely out of the movie making business no for good are you, no, are you I, still I, dabbling in it and if so to what degree um well uh, i've got a slate of films that are uh, all in pre-production what i don't do is put my own money in movies anymore okay so uh i um are you, you like know. the producer emeritus? <laughs> no, I'm the producer that gets paid. <laughs> so uh, there are tons of deals out there if you want to take a financial risk. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm out of the risk business. So, um, you know, and as I said, I took a year off last year. But even during this past year, I've, I've, I have a new publisher, uh, which is Taylor & Francis, is the parent company out of the UK. And I'm writing a series of books. It's uh, the American Film Market Presents series through Focal Press Routledge. Uh, uh, and kind of like the Four Dummies series I've just written and it's yet to be published, uh, producing for profit, uh, sort of a practical guide to studio and independent uh, filmmaking. And uh, I'm just finishing. I'm about 3,000 words from my uh, first draft to go out to peer review of screenwriting for profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I um, have shot this past a uh, couple of years, an on-camera eight-hour film school series for sale, which uh, got a meeting in L.A. with the Chinese who are looking at it on on Monday. Okay. And, um, you know, I've got a, a, a slate of pictures, but at this point, 
because the business has changed dramatically. So it's not uh, that Andrew doesn't want to be in the movie business. It's that the movie business as I knew it in my heyday, doesn't exist. Six conglomerates monopolized every studio, network, media outlet worldwide. And unless you work as an employee for them, basically it's a closed shop with, you know, uh, some exceptions. And those are the things that I work on. But uh, I work on them if uh, if other people have the money because I'm not interested in taking risks to pay other people's salaries. Right. So, so which brings me to my next question. So uh, go back to the Andrew Stevens when, when you were 20, 30 years old. Uh, let's say you were that age today. The, the, the opportunity um, that would be in front of you today looking forward, um, would that be... It would pale. Equal, it would pale, less, pale in comparison. So it's, what you're saying to, is it's much more. It's a much more difficult road to hoe. Well, let me put it this today. way. Let me put it this way. When when television came to the fore, uh, all of a sudden there was an ancillary market for movies that no one had ever dreamed of, and there was a reuse and a financial revenue stream to supplement just theatrical box office. When home video came into being, it not only was an ancillary way to, again, sell old movies and TV shows for archival purposes or fans or whatever, but it it became a viable media to make movies for. So back in the mid-'90s, I made... You know, seven Michael Dudikoff films and Don the Dragon Wilson and Jeff Fahey and Jeff Speakman. And there were huge volumes of home video stars that you could produce movies for a price and make a guaranteed profit. Uh, now there's all the new media and DVD replaced VHS. DVD is virtually obsolete and the revenues have dropped dramatically. HBO used to buy 30 independent premiere movies a year. So did Showtime, not as many. So did USA and TNT, you know, and stars. You know how many they buy today? Zero. They all yeah. make their own product. Right. In the foreign market, uh, every show that you see on television, you know, Big Brother to Survivor to The Amazing Race, they produce in their own original language for $1.98. They own it in perpetuity, and it rates way better than our movies rate. So the entire world has changed. Yeah. It's not, it, you know, I'll make movies all day long on somebody else's dime, but there is not the appetite. And then you've got 8 million Ugandans with smartphones, <laughs> and, and every kid that's six years old on with, with uh, with a smartphone, and they don't care if the sound is degenerated or the picture is the size of a of an inflated postage stamp. That's how they've learned to view media, and they view it in short bursts. They don't have the attention spans yeah. for long form anymore. Yeah. So the the business and the medium of film as we know it doesn't exist anymore, or as we knew it growing up. Uh, and I'll, I'll I'll say this quickly, but Steven Spielberg and and uh, George Lucas were both quoted as conjecturing that that theaters were going to go by the wayside except for huge luxury theaters and movie ticket prices. Movies would be events and ticket prices would be 100 to 150 bucks like a Broadway show to go see a movie in, a, in an actual theater. Hmm. And I know Mark Cuban's got all his day and date philosophy and thinks it's great. I think it's killed the movie business. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you, I think, I think everybody is curious to know this. 
do you still get checks in the mail for, let's say, a TV show that you were in back in the 70s or 80s um, that just pop up in the mail? I, I do. I, I get a, a bunch of them. Because and, everybody who's, an act, who's not an actor or mm-hmm. not a musician, you know, it's kind of like, oh, it'd be great you know, get a check in the, the mail. Residuals. <laughs> the residuals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. let me say this. I think the last check that I got for... Thirty odd episodes of Dallas for uh, the entire international market was maybe two hundred and forty seven dollars. <laughs> I, I get I, I had a check for nine cents last week that I put in, in Benchmark Bank, and, and it cost more for Mike Barnett to process it than, than it did to, to go into the bank. But uh, well, that's kind of I mean you know I. I the the the, your, the point you know nine nobody wants a nine cent check but I mean it's still a subtle reminder of what you did thirty forty years ago. Well, yes, but the the pension check that I get from the Directors Guild every month and that I get from the Screen Actors Guild every month that's a better that, that's, reminder. That's a, that's yeah. a better. <laughs> but but an even better reminder. Benchmark Bank likes getting those checks. Right? Exactly, yeah, but okay. an, an even better reminder is that I um, I I retained the rights uh, and and made sure all along the way whenever possible that when I was hiring composers to write musical scores for my movies that I retained the publisher's share of the publishing. So I own the publisher's share of over 90 scores. So I administrate a music library that is uh, a very generous yearly income from uh, from international television use and their collection societies all over the world. And I've, I've written some music as well for film. And I get much more substantial royalties from ASCAP and BMI and from the collection societies internationally for my music than ever for acting or directing. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thanks a ton for being here. I appreciate it. This has been eye-opening. Yeah, thank you. This has really been eye-opening. I've enjoyed it. So, uh, everybody, this is Insignificant Others Podcast. Again, thank you to Andrew Stevens for joining us here. And uh, we'll have to have you back again. Listen to more about the movie business. It's fascinating. <laughs> well, yeah. I can talk about other things in the movie business. <laughs> the new deals. The new deals. Perfect. Thank you.